Hey there, Mother Culture listeners. We are thrilled to be launching the Mother Culture Movie Club and coming to you today with the first episode on the iconic 1990 holiday film Home Alone with guest Nancy Reddy. Like Home Alone, this episode is for everyone, but the rest of our monthly movie club episodes will be for members of our paid Patreon only. You can join the community for just five bucks a month. We have tons of fantastic movies featuring complex, controversial, and aspirational mothers in store for you, with some killer guests coming on to Stan or Pan, their favorite movie moms. In the season of buying more crap, get yourself something that supports creators and avoids more clutter by joining us at Patreon slash Mother Culture Pod. We thank you. Now Merry Christmas, you filthy animals! And I'm Sarah Wheeler, and this is the Mother Culture Movie Club, where we take on movies through the lens of motherhood and motherhood through the lens of movies. Welcome, ladies. It is our inaugural episode of the Mother Culture Movie Club. We are fucking pumped to not be home alone, potting alone, whatever today, um, and to have Nancy Reddy here with us. Uh, she is the author of the poetry collections Pocket Universe and Double Jinx and the co-editor of The Long Devotion, Poets Writing Motherhood. Her essays have appeared in Slate, Poets and Writers, Romper, The Millions, etc., etc. And I found her through her Substack newsletter, Write More, Be Less Careful, which is about why writing is hard. I guess for some people, <laughs> yes, it's hard, <laughs> and how to do it anyway. Um, it's fabulous. She has a great series that um, she interviewed me for about uh, writers who are also caregivers. Um, and Nancy also has a book coming out in 2025, The Good Mother Myth, uh, which we are very pumped for. Um, so thank you for coming on the pod, Nancy. I'm so excited to be here. Like two of my I two of my favorite people, all of us together. Well, and I'm very excited. We were talking before we started that um, Nancy was one of the first, like, mother writer people who I found. I think I found you maybe on Twitter, X, whatever. <gasps> I, I can't remember. That. Yeah, how Before it I was the bad you? place. Yeah, and I think it was a long time before, yeah, before when it was useful. And um, you were really doing work that, as we talked about before, like, felt so fresh to me and it was what I was looking for you know it was like okay I loved a life's work who else is like thinking seriously about motherhood and poetry is such a beautiful medium for talking about I think especially early motherhood I mean it's such a fragmented <laughs> sort of yeah. time and poetry really felt like the right thing and so when I found the long devotion it was just like zing <laughs> this beautiful feeling that's and so kind of you to say when did that book come out spring of 2022 the long devotion. oh wow yeah. yeah yeah it's it's amazing how even in like a, a year just the volume of books that kind of look at motherhood in this complicated way i mean miranda mentioned rachel cuss memoir a life's work like it, you know and we had annie lamott like it, it's not like it didn't exist but um even when i had my first kid you know, seven, eight years ago, 
there was just so little on that library shelf, right? And, and so it's it's been an amazing time. Yeah. Like yeah. my kids are born in 2013 and 2015 and it really felt um like if you wanted to be a serious writer, you couldn't write about your baby. Like mm-hmm. and that's not true and I think I moved past that fairly quickly in part because mm-hmm. there was such urgency to what was happening to me and like writing is how I try to make sense of anything. Um, but it is really exciting to think that motherhood has gone from being this kind of stigmatized, like off in the corner thing, at least in the literary world, to being something that's like actually so central to what so many people are doing and that we've gotten such an incredible diversity of experiences. Um, and that was something that was really important in the long devotion in particular was really like, what are the stories of mothering that have not been captured, um, in the things that we've read so far? I loved that. And I loved that it's, um, again, I mean, so 2022, I was reading it, my baby, my second child was born in 2021. So I had an infant, and I was reading it. So it's because it's a compilation or, you know, collection of poems and short essays by so many different writers, you could really pick it up and put it down. You know, like if she was my, my daughter took 18 minute naps. That was her, that was her vibe. And so often, that's all I had. And so I wasn't going to nap and I wasn't. (laughs) So I just would stare. I would just sit and kind of stare blankly and wait for her to scream again. And, but if I could pick up that book, I could like read a poem and it would do so much for me. Like it just, and then put it back, put it down and forget about it for a few days. And I didn't have to like remember anything from that to come back to it and pick up another thing and get a nice little fresh dose of another interesting writer perspective. And sometimes like very dark and sometimes very tender and it was anyway thank you for you and that was really our service. hope in poet and like poetry in particular is saying like these are these are little things like even a long poem is a couple of pages long and like you can make space for that and you can pick it up and you can put it down and um it's the rationale for including the writing prompts as well that like if you're in a moment of your life where you can't write a whole chapter you can't think about how a whole book comes together you can mm. you can find five minutes and you can capture something that's going to be important and meaningful to you. Yeah. yeah. I love thinking about that, not just kind of the content of what we write for mothers, but the form. That's beautiful. I think about that a lot with like um, books for ADHD. Like I have ADHD and I, I write about ADHD and I often pick up these books and I'm like, this is supposed to be a book for an ADHD year and um, it is not written for an ADHD reader. Like I'm, you know, I, I just glance through two pages and I want to like, you know, gouge my eyes out. And then every once in a while, someone will write like a really friendly book, like um, this author, Joan Wilder, that has, that's really ADHD friendly. And it's interesting to think about like um, who's kind of taking care of their audience and mm-hmm. and who isn't. Um but I mean, it helps to have people with lived experience being the ones that actually are writing about things. Yeah, and I think yeah. with that anthology in particular, like my co-editor Emily and I, our kids were still really little when they started it, uh, or when we started working on that book. I think my younger son was three, like so. I was still really in that. I had kind of like slept enough to wake up again. Um, and like look around me and be like, what happened? And I think it was helpful to have that like really close to that um, experience perspective still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's fresh and it comes through in the work, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to force it. 
Well, I would love to do a little table setting here. Um, I mean, we're here to talk about the mother culture. We've, we've already checked that off our list. Um, but we especially want to talk about it, how it relates to the 1990 film Home Alone. And I will do a little bit of a refresher for any of our listeners who haven't seen this movie, you know, since they were 10 um, or <gasps> have never seen it maybe all of the Gen Zers that that listen to our podcast. So Home Alone is, of course, the 1990 film that catapulted Macaulay Culkin into stardom. He just got his Hollywood star this week, so very topical. And Catherine O'Hara was there with him, who plays his mom in the movie. It was really adorable. Uh, Home Alone is about a boy named Kevin in the Chicago suburbs whose family leaves for a Christmas vacation to France and forgets to take him with them. He has like a million older siblings and cousins and aunts and like a dick uncle and shit is a little crazy. And I guess like airline policies are way different and they don't realize he's missing until they're already on the plane to Europe. Meanwhile... A pair of silly crooks that call themselves the Wet Bandits have been casing his house, and the movie follows their attempts to break in, Kevin's attempts to thwart them, and also to kind of grapple with this existential crisis of being left alone on Christmas by a family that does generally neglect and torment him, but, you know, whom he loves and believes that he kind of magically wished away with his resentment. And importantly, we also follow his mother's quest to return to him. There's a side plot with a menacing neighbor who's actually just a sad, estranged dad. There's a pivotal Michael Jordan cutout and some great use of Christmas music. And of course, like this beautiful score by John Williams. And the absolutely wonderful Catherine O'Hara gives this totally iconic performance as Kate McAllister, Kevin's mom. And she's kind of been cemented in the cultural mindscape as both like the mom who risked everything, including likely her desire not to travel cross country with a polka band in a U-Haul, right, to get back her son. And she's also the mom who left her kid home alone. So Nancy, when I rewatched this movie last year with my kid, I was having all of these swirling thoughts about Kate McAllister. And of course, because you are just tapped into the zeitgeist, you kind of at the same moment were writing this wonderful essay in Catapult about her and also kind of about your own mother. And so I want to know what intrigues you most about this character of the mom in Home Alone? I think in a way, home, Kate McAllister is really refreshing as a mother character because she's not poised. She's not perfect. She's not sweet. Um, there's a moment that I've thought about a lot and that is um, that's in the essay where uh, she sent Kevin up to his room because he was being, you know, annoying at dinner. I mean, really, everyone is annoying, and he kind of did the last thing. And so she said, no, she sends him to the attic. She sends him to the mm -hmm. attic to go sleep by himself. And he's eight. He's little. Um, and he doesn't want to go, and he's really mad. And she tries to make him apologize, and he won't really have it. Um, and she just, like, sends him off. And he says, this is, a, you know, the kind of... Um, famous the lines of the movie yeah. or one of many of them um the i wish my family would disappear um kind of a line and i just think 
And she doesn't, she doesn't back down. She's like, okay, go to bed, kid. Like, we are done for the night. And I love that moment in part because it feels so wildly um, ungentle. And, I have, and we don't need to mm. talk about gentle parenting. But, like, it, it feels like, like Dr. Becky would not approve of that. She would be, like, sitting at the bottom of the steps with him until something happened i don't know she would be processing his feelings i don't know how hard i should go on dr becky or like, you'd have to repair right yeah you'd have to repair that. i mean maybe the whole movie to... is a repair but yeah and so she is like kind of um she's not gentle um but she is really loving and that to me is an important kind of a model i mean she yes like is really she has had it with him um and probably with all of the chaos in her house um but she's also the one who, as you say, like, flies right back to the United States, like, has to be at a polka band's van as they're, like, driving across the country. Like, she's the one who, who goes home. Um, and yeah, I do think moment. we get a moment oh. of, I would say, I do think we get a moment of repair at the very end, right? There's mm. that moment where he walks into the house and they see each other. Yeah, like, that moment when, fine. when they leave her so... She realizes mid-flight that she's forgotten Kevin. Yeah, there's and the famous, like, it's, Kevin! It's great, and it's it's such a relatable moment where she's... So I was thinking about this. I woke up early this morning, and I was thinking about the mechanisms of, like, how John Hughes made it feel pretty possible, actually. that you, Like, the whole premise sounds ridiculous, that you would forget a child. But he actually took a lot of steps to create like a sense of yeah you know what this could happen like so there's that the fact that there's five kids in their own family and in kevin's family the McAllisters have five kids their cousins are visiting with their children and their parents appear to be semi-awful they um, suck uncle they frank suck. is uncle a, frank sucks. is like i mean i know the robbers are are like the clear nemeses here but uncle frank is the worst yeah and they're making like everything harder that they're not helpful other adults so like it is all falling Mm -hmm. on kate it's all like to pay the pizza guy right like she's the one who finally pays the pizza guy and she's standing there and she's like this is chaos so it's all falling on her she's keeping it all together it's her house that's being just trashed and then so what happens is they lose power in the night their alarms don't go off so they're late for the airport so they're already late. She's delegated the task of like counting kids to this older cousin who seems actually pretty responsible. And she does a great job. She just doesn't realize that this neighbor kid is not Kevin. So then they get to the airport. They're rushing. And I remember we've all like run through airports and you're just not tracking like a whole lot. And they've got like, yeah, 11 kids to track or whatever. They get on the plane and they're, they're not sitting with the kids. And there's no security. So there's really they're like, in first class, by the way. They're in first like, class. Absolute yes. baller move. And they mentioned the though that the brother class. did that. That the brother that they're visiting in Paris booked the tickets. So that was his choice. I would like to say that Kate did it, but we don't it doesn't appear that that was Kate's choice. No, she has some misgivings about it. She yeah, says she's like, not she comfortable. Bad. Right. Yeah, because she's I think a... then she gets comfortable. Well, I mean yeah. those seats are pretty cozy. They're li- they look great. But so like there's all these things that, like, now as a mother, watching it as a mother, I was like, yeah, if I had five kids and this was my house, like, yeah, I could see it. This could happen. This could act. 
totally. This could definitely happen. So Which I want to so ask weird. about Nancy's mother in a second, yeah. but I just want to add that my mother was not was not like Kate McAllister. My mother, like you know, was doing gentle parenting before it was a thing. She was a therapist. She was like, let's all go around and talk about our feelings. You know, um, she did not wear pantsuits like that. I mean, amazing, those pantsuits. Um, and she, and and yeah, she probably wouldn't have sent me to the attic. It would have been like we sat and talked and like, you know, talked about what we needed and, and how we were going to be better people. Um, but she did have five kids. And I just want to vouch for like the plausibility of this premise. We used to, we had this sixth um, imaginary sibling named George that anytime we traveled, like if we managed to get everybody into the airport, out of the car, parked with all of our stuff, we would kind of do the count. And someone, the family joke was that someone would go, oh, we forgot George. And, you know, it was like, but but it was like very, it felt possible that like George could have been Alex, my my little brother. There was a lot going on. Like people would like pay for her dinner sometimes when they saw her out with five kids. It was like, clearly you're in a crisis. But Nancy, you wrote about your mom who, you know, I think you felt had some connections with Kate McAllister. And I, I want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think now if my mom would object to my characterization of Kate McAllister and her in, as not gentle. Um, and she might. You but... know what? We don't, you raise kids and then you don't get to, you don't get to dictate how they talk about you. So yeah. sorry, mom. <laughs> I, I think to me, and again, like I'm so obsessed with that moment where she sends him up to the attic. Like, I just love the idea that a mom can be someone who just kind of says like, this is the rule actually. Um, my mom used to say, um, what does she say? This is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. Oh and my God. I think that's, I'm about to like start having to use that line with my 10 year old. Um, Cause he's really like leaning into becoming a preteen. Um, I'm going to tattoo it on my forehead. It's, I mean, and it's, it's a beautiful. good line. And I think actually like that is also a way of like helping and taking care of your kids, right? Like kids don't actually get to make every decision. Um, and that feels, I don't know, I feel really grateful to have had that model from my mother and, like, to have that as a parent and to understand, like, the the most important thing to me kind of moment to moment isn't actually my kid's happiness. Um, mm. I want them to be happy, right? But I think just kind of, like, placating the moment to moment is not actually the most important thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, my mom, to to back up a little bit, was a single mom for most of my childhood. Um, there were only two of us, but I think that was probably enough. Um, and she was, we lived in suburban Pittsburgh. She worked downtown, like, um, you know, drive, like take us to daycare, drop her car off at the park and ride, take the bus into town, like that kind of a, that kind of a mom. And in my mind, she very much is the kind of like Kate McAllister, you know, shoulder pads in the blazer, um, bobbed hair, kind of brown 80s lipstick 80s 90s lipstick um who just is like getting it all done because she's the only one who's gonna do it um like a power like a power mom yeah like, a, like an eight like an 80s 90s yeah. I, lo I love that i felt and I, like my mom super like, super yeah. loving and wonderful um but also pretty no nonsense at times in a way that i think was an important model for me yeah, it so, seems also honest, like just draw, hmm. like what you're saying about saying like a benevolent dictatorship, like uh, 
gentle parenting is like, you know, made up. So like, I don't want to use that term, but I would say that it's respectful to be honest with your kid, right? Like, this is not a democracy because I'm a grown up and you're a kid. So like, sometimes, you know, I have to just, we do just have to do what I say. And that sucks, maybe. But like, you just have to do it. And I think that's nice. Like, I do. I, I It's not mean. It's just like a fact. So you two are alluding, I think, very appropriately to kind of the parenting culture of the moment. And I, you know, I will add, not for everyone, you know, I think most people on earth are not parenting their kids this way, but for a certain group of, you know, privileged, um, you know, highly educated, often liberal, you know, often white mothers. And, you know, and this stuff gets repackaged, right? Like the name Madison, right? Where it starts out as this kind of elite thing. But then now, you know, this type of parenting is being fed to parents of all class backgrounds and racial black backgrounds, you know, for better or worse. But that includes the terms like gentle parenting, you know, the Dr. Becky, the Janet Lansbury, the kind of you have to be responsive, right? You have to validate your kids' emotions. Um, you have to be fully present, right? And Kate McAllister, you know, would, in that chaotic packing scene, too, like she's on the phone with her friend. Um, and so I just think it's interesting sitting where we are in 2023, you know, being mothers who are in this microculture where we are being told that um, the way that Kate reacted to her kids is not a good way to parent your kids. Not only is it like you're not a good mom, but it's it's bad for them, right? Like they're going to grow up with some kind of vague problems. And there's some research that kind of backs this up, but I, I happen to believe a lot of it's pretty shoddy that like, you know, that there are consequences to giving your kid a limit like that or sending them to the attic if we want to use that as like a metaphor for anything. So, you know, it's not out of context that we're watching this movie. And I'm curious about our kind of nostalgia for 90s mothering, even though, you know, the kind of power mom that you're talking about had its drawbacks. Like my mother talks about, even though she was, you know, she was a gentle lady, you know, the pressure in that generation of mothers to kind of be the people who were not their mothers who could work and be a good mom. And uh, we have a version of that now, but you know, it wasn't all moms not giving, you know, not giving mm -hmm. a shit about their kids. But so, so let's talk about that nostalgia for like nineties parenting and where it comes from and what it means. I think it's really helpful to think about it in terms of nostalgia as a kind of corrective um, because I do think, I mean, I think about my mom when my parents got divorced and we moved to um, Pittsburgh uh, so my mom could get a higher paying job because she was like, well, if I'm going to raise two kids. I got to make more money. So let's do this. Um, moved in Pittsburgh where my aunt was living. She was also a single mother at the time. And um, I mean, my mom got this kind of like, um, you know, high powered office job with a consulting firm. And she did not tell the people she worked for that she had kids. For like wow. the first long time that she was there because she was like, well, they're not going to take me seriously. They're not going to think I can work enough. Um, they're not going to ever promote me. Um, and then eventually, of course, there were times when like one of us would sit worse was sick and would have to go into the office with her or something. So, you know, you can't actually. Hide and your she would be forever. like, that's just my intern. Yeah. Isn't this weird <laughs> that I have this small person who followed me? And I don't I'll have to ask her about like how she made that transition. But I know she felt at first like it would not be safe for her career to be known. And not just as a mother, but as a single mother. Um, mm. 
like that people would not think she was going to, and because it was a consulting firm, there was such like an hourly billing culture. Um, and, and so all that to say, I think it's really important to remember, um, I don't know, are we in a better time now? I hope we are maybe in some ways, um, but that the 90s were not quite as rosy as maybe we sometimes think they were. Um, yeah. Well, that's nostalgia, right? Like, yeah. it, it's a trap, right? You 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 imagine everything through kind of rose-tinted glasses. Yeah. You know? I have this theory yeah. that the 90s are like the root of all of our unresolved kind of cultural conversations, because there is all this stuff oh. about working mothers. I think about Murphy Brown a lot. Um, if you all remember kind of like iconic single mom. Um, and shoulder pads. Talk about shoulder, shoulder pads. pads. Big hair. <laughs> Um, she's a fictional character, um, but Dan Quayle got into like a big fight with her when he was running for um, vice president or re-election as vice president. It was the same campaign where he misspelled potato at the spelling bee. Um, are you that all- was the kind of thing in the 90s where like I, I didn't know who actual Dan Quayle was, but I was very familiar with the character on Saturday Night Live. And the potato thing, you know, and like, you know, I had this like trickled down understanding of adult things that Dan Quayle was an idiot, but yeah. I don't think I knew he was a real yeah. person. I probably thought he was on par with Murphy Brown. I mean, fair enough. Like he got into a totally unprovoked fight with a fictional character about like, you know, our values <laughs> and, and whatever else. But I think there are all of these things, right? You think about like sexual harassment in Anita Hill, you think about abortion, you think about like Ugh. all of these things that are really still with us. Um I don't know that never that we never really came to cultural consensus about in the 90s and there's like really live issues now yeah i think i mean the you know i think a lot about like our peers and the 90 nostalgia sort of obsession and um maybe every generation kind of has this right like when we were kids like we nick at night was on and like so our parents were re-watching like i love lucy you know they were revisiting their childhood and um you know we were listening to Greeking Out, which I hope everyone listens to, the um, Greek myth podcast. My son is obsessed with it and um, fabulous stuff. And they mentioned how nostalgia, like the root of that word is it's like Odysseus, like a, like a pain, pain of homesickness, like a longing for home that is painful. So it's it's a negative thing. It's like acute, acute homesickness is kind of a like like it's a disease and I it feels very apt like I do think not to be like you know super critical but I do think our 90s nostalgia obsession is a disease and like not making us well and I think like you're saying this rose-colored thing for what the time was not and um Nancy you know we don't you don't have to speak for your mom more than you already have but unless you want to um but uh my mom was working full-time and raising me largely alone. I, I saw my dad, but um, less than I saw my mom. And um, I think it must have been very, very hard. And I was an only child, really. So, um, but I don't know that, I feel like the mothering when you're a single mother is you simply, I would imagine, don't have time to think incredibly hard about, like, the way that you're parenting because you're just doing it in your piece like she's not going you know like kate McAllister is not going to like a workshop on you know <laughs> developing her child's emotional intelligence so to, to miranda's point i don't know i'm trying to think about the stay-at-home moms that i knew as a kid i'm not sure if they were doing that either um i mean i think mm-hmm. like every 
we're on this kind of like long arc of understanding mothering as a profession, as like a professional um, undertaking that requires expertise. Um, you know, you have to buy the right books. You have to go to webinars. You have to join someone's community where you can get support. And I think for me, one of the things that I have always really appreciated about my own mom and that that I see in Kate McAllister as well is that there is also this idea that her kids are separate people from her. Um, and to go back to what you were saying, Sarah, about like that Kevin is not going to be permanently traumatized by being sent to the attic one time, right? And the movie certainly doesn't believe that having been left home alone at Christmas with robbers has traumatized him. Like, he seems fine at the end, actually. Um, no, it was character building, I think. Yeah, and it's this to, way you know? of understanding kids as, like, resilient and capable. Um, and that actually seems really important to me. And that's one thing that I feel like a lot of our parenting discourse now really doesn't capture. I think there's this idea that, like, kids are fragile and we have to protect them. And if we ever say the wrong thing, we can ruin them for life. Um, and I think this desire to like prevent our children from ever being uncomfortable or unhappy or anything like that's not actually possible. And I don't think it's our highest goal. I mean, ideally don't leave your home kids home alone for Christmas. Um, but yeah, you know, but like, that was bad in her world too. Yeah. Right? Like, it's yeah, like exactly. The, like there's no yeah. world in which that's optimal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I also think there's something to be said for like believing that your kids are their own people um, and that they're capable and resilient. And like, if you fuck up as a mom, they're going to be okay. Like, apologize. I apologize to my kids when I'm impatient with them or whatever. But I don't think that I've like ruined their lives by getting impatient with them when they like don't put their socks on for the bajillionth time. I don't think that that requires like a repair in some dramatic sense. Well, that really sweet, you know, talking about what Kevin got out of being left home alone, like, so the part that we had, my five-year-old had never seen this movie, so we watched it this past weekend to get ready for this episode, and I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, um, and I didn't like it as a kid. I found it scary, and I didn't, so it was not, like, a nostalgia watch for me. It was like a, what is this movie? And um, so, but one of the things that was interesting that we kind of paused the movie and talked to my son about and started again like the furnace is like kevin's like big scary thing and it's in the basement and he has these things that he imagines about it like saying his name and and at the end of the movie he goes back into the basement i think he's in the middle of doing all the booby traps like at the big climax and um and he's like not afraid of it like it does the scary noise but this time he's not afraid and so my son was like it was cool to, I watched his face when that happened and my son kind of, I could see him like relating to that moment. And it, it was having the house all to himself. The kid, like he grew and it was sort of weirdly emotional as a parent. And like, I cried when Kate got home <laughs> and like, I just, I always cry was, there. Yeah, it was well, so... Well, and Nancy, to your point about, like, my kids separate from me, I didn't notice this time, uh, the first time I rewatched this, but this last rewatch this weekend, when she comes home, as Miranda's talking about, yeah, you're like, as a mom, if you see it about a movie that is not about a kid trying to, like, you know, um, booby trap crooks, although it's a beautiful movie of that, but a movie about like a mom trying to get home to her kid and like sell all her jewelry. And like, she, you know, she's a badass too. She like kicks that bitch off the phone, you know, and like she, 
<laughs> you know, and she's like, you know, trying to yeah bribe everybody, listening to enduring all of the polka, by the way. Um, and she's a really funny actress. She is one of like our best comedic actresses. And this is probably John Hughes too and the way that he writes, but like she's reining it in. Like she's giving a real performance. Um, and so, you know, it can be that journey. And then all of a sudden she walks in. You, of course, like by this time, if you're a mom, you you are feeling emotional. And she doesn't go to him right away. And I was just thinking about this, Nancy, when you were talking about being separate from your kid. Actually, the scene where she walks in is that she rushes in, she stands in like the threshold, and she watches him from behind, and he doesn't see her yet. So you see her behind him. Miranda's crying right now, by yeah. the way. And, <laughs> and she just takes a minute to look at him. And she just, like, what is she doing in that moment? She's assessing that he's okay. Maybe she's, like, marveling that he got through this. She's giving herself a second not to, like, put all of her shit on him, maybe, about this journey she's been on. And then she says his name and and he turns around and they, and he, and he doesn't forgive her right away. She does try to repair and he's like, you know, or maybe he's overwhelmed that, you know, she came back because he thought, he, she, you know, he thought it was his fault, right? That she disappeared. Um, but then, but then they kind of hug and it's over. And so that moment is interesting. And then my son actually, when she pulls up in the U-Haul and is about to rush in at the end, my son said, oh my God, now she's going to go through the booby traps. Like he thought that was how the movie ended. That then Kate McAllister like steps on tar and touches the heated up doorknob and gets like feathers in her face. And he was like, this is the best movie ever. And, and, and I was thinking about that as like, you know, a kind of revenge, like, you know, in a way there there's like a child fantasy there about like yeah now the mom i don't think of these you know violences as real you know if you're my kid yeah. right you're imagining them as cartoonish so it's like now the mom gets the cartoon violence and she kind of deserves it right <laughs> but the movie actually does not end that way it it's very gentle on her and it doesn't make her a villain and i thought about if this movie was being made now would this character be the same? Would we be trained as an audience to see her the same way? It's really hard to reimagine. I mean, one of the like weird rabbit holes that I fell down when I was writing that essay, where there's all these like wiki pages of some kind um, devoted to talking about the movie. And like some of them are just interesting facts about like how it was filmed and who the house used to belong to. Um, but there's also like pages upon pages of people um, just like saying horrible things about Kate McAllister and how she's like the world's worst mom, which is weird for me because I was like, I don't I actually think she's amazing. Um, but it seems like grown men like genuinely mad at her in a way that I don't know, they could unpack a little. Um, yeah. But all that to say, I think it would be really hard to remake this movie now if for no other reason that like no, no TV house has that much shit in it. Like, it would be like, here is this, like, pristine, monochrome, um, decluttered, um, it would not have, like, like an attic. And... Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Nobody has, like, cut out Michael Jordan and a mannequin um, and, like, weird old bits and pieces of um, home improvement projects just, like, laying around. I mean, in real life, you know, my basement is full of all of those things. Um, but... Um, in a movie? No. Um, 
but more seriously yeah. to the to the point of her character it is really hard to imagine um who could be Kate McAllister now and like how you would not just be seen as the actual villain of the movie it'd be like, Kristen Bell I'm just gonna throw oh god Ooh. see but yeah. she's like she's yeah she's very I don't know cute I don't yeah I don't know that she could be Catherine O'Hara in the same way I feel like um it would this is like duh but it would be so hard to make this movie in the age of like cell phones because like the whole thing is that they can't get a hold of anyone right like everyone's on vacation we're just getting voice like yeah. answering machines even the alarm and... clock right the alarm clock depends on um the idea right. that the electricity would You're... actually like you know ruin anything about your life yeah right i mean kind of in a way that okay here's my nostalgic like moment i would love to go back to like actually being off the grid like yeah that. like i do often um, think like let's just turn off the internet i mean obviously there are things we would lose like this podcast <sighs> but like just, wait i'm I just know. laughing about like it? the three of us asking being like so for christmas this year i would like to be left home alone you guys can go to yeah. paris it's fine <laughs> please yeah. cut off all please cut <laughs> off all services and yeah yes. i'm good oh that would be if someone could do that for me i would pay <laughs> i think i would i would a thousand dollars i would at least a thousand dollars for like 24 I mean, hours of that you no, know we're at, you're talking about the the premise and the logistics but but i also think what would be hard about making this film now is the yeah i mean getting that mother character balance would be really difficult because leaving your kid home alone now you know means something different than it used to i mean it, in 1990 it 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 wasn't okay to leave your kid home for two days and go to France or whatever. But, you know, but now it's like, you know, if you leave your kid for 10 minutes, we talked about this on a previous episode about kids and independence. And, you know, it's really seen as a negative thing. And there's all these kind of cultural backlashes around parents trying to like intentionally give their kids more independence. Um, but I just even think that bare fact of like a kid being home alone for half an hour mm -hmm. is so shocking to modern parents, even if they're not in this kind of gentle parenting microculture mm -hmm. that we're talking about. Yeah, there's definitely like an increased expectation of surveillance overall, right? I mean, I think even about like how much of my childhood I spent in like the back of someone's car, like waiting while they ran errands, like just in a parking lot, just waiting, you know? And now so you'd be forever. like, oh, my God, you can't leave that child. Like, what if someone might take them? Well, stranger kidnappings, like, statistically don't happen. Like, no one is going to take your kid. Um, mm -hmm. Especially yeah. now. Yeah, I wonder how this movie lot. would be received. Right. Like, I don't know. It, so it, yeah. I did, like, in a void, like, if this movie didn't get made and when it did and um, I do think some of this, the thing that works about this movie that, like, in a lot of ways, like, it shouldn't work is is the john hughes of it like he's so kind of like he has a warmth and a um kind of he himself i guess was a already a parent and so this was inspired by his own thinking as he was packing for a for a trip like what if we forgot like let's not forget anything haha ha, what if we forgot a kid and then imagining what his 10 year old would do oh. home alone and so um but i I do think like I'm trying to think of like a director or who would be in this and then how this movie would be received in 2023. Well, Just... we also have to talk about how white this movie is. I mean, and that's the John Hughes of it all too, like the white suburbia, 
You know, there is not, I think, a person of color in this entire film, save the Michael Jordan cutout. Like, that's the representation. (laughs) And I mean, it is dripping white. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I saw it when I was a kid, because I did not grow up in an, you know, in an all white environment, I thought it was like a fantasy. I Mm -hmm. mean, or, you know, I was like, oh, this is this like, made up TV world where there's only white people and everybody has like big houses. And then as I got older, I realized that, you know, that actually is what, at least in 1990, that's what that neighborhood was like. I know people that grew up there in the kind of wealthier parts of Chicago and that's, that's real. Um, And so I, I wonder too, like we're talking about nineties parenting as if it's kind of a monoculture, you know, are we really talking about, white parenting and how white parenting has changed. Are we also talking about like, you know, something around suburban living that isn't the way that it used to be um, or that makes it easier or harder to be a parent? I think the whiteness is really important as well as just like the wealth of it, right? The fact that they've got this enormous house, the fact that they are flying to France, um, I think also about the particulars of the neighborhood, the fact that Kevin can walk to go get their little groceries, right? Like that's not a kind of suburban neighborhood. That certainly isn't the neighborhood that I grew up in um, in terms of sprawl. Um, So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's really, the movie is absolutely incredibly white and is a relic of a very particular kind of um, 90s parenting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that we've talked here on the pod about like third spaces that are these places that people can go that isn't their home and isn't school and that kids can be. And it is true that like the suburbs kind of, you know, used to have more kind of of the small downtown that you could potentially walk to rather than just being, you know, very sprawled and very car based. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just thinking also about like, what is the, I mean, this is not as directly related to the movie, but it's something that I've thought about a lot in my own parenting is like, how are you seen in a community? Like, are there people who, as they're driving around, are going to see your kid and know like, oh, that kid lives in that house. Um, right. And this seems like a neighborhood. There's that, you know, she rips apart the um, her Rolodex or whatever it is. They try to call them. Nobody's home because it's the holidays. But they do seem to know and be known to some extent by their neighbors. Um, but not enough for anyone to help um, other than the kind of scary neighbor next door. And I think about... Um, like the little town that we live in now, which is like a little town in New Jersey. It definitely is suburban, but like we can walk places, right? I walk my kids to school. We can walk to the library. I can walk to Wawa. When I see kids, um, I often do know like who their families are. And I think that's a really important to me aspect of like being part of a community. And it is this like suburban sprawl has made it really hard for most places to be like that. I think most kids do not grow up um in neighborhoods like that which i think is really i don't know i think it's kind of bad to not be known to people in your community yeah i I thought about that a lot yeah just like the geography is what i'm trying to think about yeah and i the the built environment of a neighborhood totally and i'm always like in defense of cities and raising children in the city because i i live in oakland yeah i raise my kids here 
And, you know, there's this stereotype that like people don't know each know their neighbors in the city. And I'm I feel sorry for those people. I think they should walk out of their house and knock on some doors and, you know, be take some risks. But yeah. we live right next to a co-housing community. There's like eight families, you know, where I, I do leave my kids home alone. I don't go to France, but you know, I'll go pick up sushi or something across the street. And they know that like they can go out the back door. They don't even have to go out onto the street to knock on a neighbor's door and ask for help if they need it. And yeah, I mean, even like the kind of, you know, single pothead dude that like runs the punk band rehearsal studio next door. Like that guy tells me when my trunk is open, you know, that guy would would be like, oh, it seems like there's a kid in here. You know, it's like so. It, but we do have this story now, I think, about that isn't made up about parents being isolated and families being isolated. And it's funny because I, I see the movie as showing more of that, even though it's 25 years old, that like these that you could possibly be so distanced from your neighbors and your community that you could manage to be home alone for a few days. <clears throat> well, I think the holiday element is a good device because it, you know, like everyone is gone visiting family. So you're right. like, oh, you're okay. right. That's Everybody's true. They, they make a big gone. point about that. But the people at the store, he goes to like that little kind of general mm -hmm. store for the toothbrush. And um, then he goes to like the grocery store and the girl at the grocery store feels like the most like, okay, kid, like you, what is going on? But he kind of like gets through um interesting that she doesn't like call the cops or something but well he says his mom's in the car and right. in 1990 in that little environment that was enough and she's safe. young like the checker is young like she's so she doesn't appear to be a mother herself you know so like um he manages to avoid other mother contact because i do feel like mm. if he ran into a mom she might be like hang on a minute <laughs> like but um i don't know that's just my that's my gut feeling um yeah the I, holiday device does really work to kind of excuse that so we're getting close to the end and i want to quickly pick your brain nancy about um the hyper mom scene when kate is at the so we're kind of backtracking a little bit but at the beginning of the movie towards the beginning she's aware that kevin is home alone she's in paris she's off the plane because you couldn't call from planes back then so she's finally off the plane she rushes to the phone she she gets through to the cops in town right and she's just like please go check on my son he's home alone <laughs> like simple that should be the end of the movie right like and then they go and get him and then he's safe and the end but that doesn't happen because even though she is speaking like a perfectly normal incredibly calm person actually for someone who is surely having like the biggest panic attack of her life picturing like her son dead on the floor or something right but she's calmly saying hello i'm kate mccallister this is my house could you please send an officer to check on my eight-year-old who is alone we have accidentally left him <laughs> and then the cops say oh i gotta transfer you just a second and then you hear them between themselves call her a hyper hyper woman on the phone and they use that word like multiple times, even though she's, well, she's increasingly like concerned. But yeah, anyway, you mentioned this word in your in your 
lovely essay too. It's kind of like hysterical. It's right? very like much hysterical like woman. Up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're like gaslighting her. I mean, and it's yeah. to me, it feels like this moment where it just highlights the thing that we all know, right? Which is like, there's actually no way to do it correctly. She's being, as you say, like totally calm and reasonable, doing the most obvious, responsible thing. Um, and a totally normal level of concern gets her gets her marked as hyper. It's like hyper on line one, and they keep passing her back and forth. Um, and there's just kind of no way. It's like she she's a bad mom because she left her kid. She's also a bad mom because she's too worked up now. Um, I mean, I think about... Um, we were talking briefly before about Sarah Mankadick's book, Ordinary Anxiety, Ordinary Anxiety, which is about... Um, or Ordinary Insanity, I think. Oh, thank right? you. Sarah Mankadick's yeah. book, yes. Ordinary Insanity, um, which is about maternal anxiety. Um, what is she? And she calls it like an undiagnosed epidemic, maybe, mm-hmm. um, in American mothering. And I think it's because we have, especially now... Um, this kind of incredibly risk averse culture, the idea that like there is no amount of risk that is okay from like pregnancy through your kids are grown that is okay. You know, there, why would you even bother having a sushi because you know, it could, you know, ruin your fetuses something. Um, and I think there's just this, there's this expectation that like at a certain amount of worry is just what it means to be a good mom. But also, if you're too worried, you're hysterical. If you're too worried, you're going to stress your kids out and mess them up. Um, so there's like an expectation of vigilance. But it also gets you characterized, as Sarah was saying, as like hysterical, right? Like, you're, oh, now you're crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so, so kind of to wrap up, it's like, we're not nostalgic. Well, there's some things that haven't changed, right? Like that hasn't changed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that has not changed. Maybe that, that is moment. the part of the movie that would still happen today. Like... Right. That they'd still kind of think, call her a crazy lady. Yeah. Right. That you, there's no way to get it right and be a good, quote unquote, good mom. Yeah. yeah what, and, like, and... what is the Madonna horror of anxiety? Like what... <laughs> What would we call oh, that? It's the oh, it's the bad mom and the and the helicopter parent. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's bad mom's Christmas or whatever. You know, it's like I'm drunk at the soccer game <laughs> and now I'm you know, or 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 I'm doing my kids' homework. <laughs> yeah, oh, so I'm we... laughing because I would be crying otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, there are some things that feel like they've gotten worse. You know, and like you know, I think there's some things we're not nostalgic for, like you know having a job where you can't tell them you have kids, which by the way, probably still exists for lots of women um, who are in less privileged situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably your mom, Nancy, wouldn't kind of make that same choice or have to in that yeah. same position today. I mean, there were interesting um, stories during the pandemic of women not disclosing um, pregnancies because they yeah. didn't have to because they were on Zoom and similarly like felt like they would be subject to pregnancy discrimination, which certainly is still ongoing. Um, and certainly if you work a job that you can do via Zoom, that's a that's a level of privilege um, versus like working in a warehouse um, and being fired when you won't lift things anymore. Um, but I think you're right. There definitely there's still like ongoing stigma against pregnant people, against mothers, against parents to some extent. Well, maybe less has changed than we think since 1990 for mothers. And I, you know, I still maintain what we kind of said towards the top that I am nostalgic for a time when I felt like I could 
send my kid to the attic and they'd be okay, you know, or whatever my version of that is. Just say no, right? And I do feel like I've been shaped as a mother by a million little kind of scalpels or, you know, whatever, little hands um, all the time to kind of do something very different and to be, to really have like, I don't even know where to find in my body the place where I could say like, you messed up, here's your punishment, you know, because I just feel like I've been trained from day one to really be all about um, the harm of that and the like benefit of validating feelings. So I am nostalgic for that. Yeah. Um, and I know there are mothers out there that that are parenting like Kate McAllister, and I guarantee you their their kids are are not better, you know, are, aren't worse off than mine. Yeah. Um, but it's just kind of the water we swim in right now. Can we really? share, like, oh, I just so, you know, Kate, McCall uh, Kate McAllister, Catherine O'Hara accompanied Macaulay Culkin on his um, Hollywood star thing. And um, I think it was The Independent, like, pulled a little quote she said that was like, the line from Home Alone that horrified Catherine O'Hara. But her actual quote in the article, if I could just read it, it's funny. She says, the scene where I had to drag him upstairs to sleep in the attic because he'd misbehaved. He's mouthing off about the family, and I say, well, you'd be pretty sad if you woke up tomorrow morning and had no family. And he says, no, I wouldn't. And I was supposed to say, then say it again. Maybe it'll happen. I can't tell you how much that killed me. I could not wrap my head around saying something so horrific to this beautiful child. But then O'Hara said, of course, I was not yet a mother at the time, and I had <laughs> no idea the kind of things that would come out of my own mouth with my own two sons. Oh, like perfection. So yeah. maybe we just don't want a parent like like Kate McAllister. We want a parent like Catherine O'Hara, and we should be. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know more about that. I first... <laughs> yeah, yeah. What came out of her mouth? Beautiful. Anyway, very validating. I felt. Yeah. Um. Well, thank yeah. you for I mean illuminating this this character so much and and what it means kind of for us today. I almost I want to watch the movie like again now. I, um, I haven't watched it again yet this year, so I should uh, maybe I'll do oh, that yeah. this weekend. You have yeah. time. Yeah, we watch and it every year, at least once a year. Before we let you go, Nancy, uh, we'd like to ask you if you could be, and you can interpret this however you you want, any movie mother. Who would you be? You know, I I've thought about this, and I don't know. If there are, and I should say I have a terrible memory for movies for the most part, so probably there are examples Except out there and I'm just Alone. not thinking of them. Except for Home Alone, which I've watched a lot of times. Um, I don't know that there are any movie moms I would want to be. There probably are some TV moms and definitely some book moms that I love. Um, but I think I was, we just, re every year on Thanksgiving, we watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, another John Hughes movie. Yes. And I was thinking as we were watching that this year, first of all, like the mom in that is such a non-character. She has no personality, no identifying characteristics other than like the plot device of occasionally answering the phone when he's calling. Um, but I feel like I, I want to be um, like Steve Martin. Not that I want to be like away, um, but like, why is there, there's no mom version of that in movies that I've seen, like getting up to some hijinks, having a wild time. Um, the kids are at home and they're going to be fine. Um, they are cared for in your absence. Um, there's a line in that movie where 
I'm trying to think of what part of the journey he's on. Um, but he says something like, you know, I've been away from home too much. I think he's kind of like, I have to stop, stop traveling so much. And that's such an interesting line coming from a man, because I think coming from a mother, it would be freighted with like so much self-recrimination. It would be like a crisis um, of identity and maternal role. But from him, it's really proof that he's a good dad, like that he wants to be home more mm. and he's out providing is just evidence of like what a upstanding guy he is. So I don't that's know if there's so a movie mom I want to be, but I but well, I you, have been thinking. You want to create this character that's like a mom that could go. Yeah. On like a, what if we reboot adventure? planes, trains and automobiles with with like moms in that role? Right. Like, and I would we love don't to see make that. transgression a theme. Like that's the thing is there kind of are those yeah. movies are like I'm thinking about Thelma and Louise. I don't think they're I don't think they're mothers, but they're women. It's yeah. like there's always transgression. Yeah. With something like that. Or yeah, there's a lot moms. of bad moms. But right. like what I'm if it's just like a mom doing some like dumb goofy things you know well maybe we should invite our listeners to call in and let us know yeah there is a character like that and um i think you know i was (laughs) this is like a silly little movie but wine country you guys watched wine country no oh gosh okay you gotta watch it it's like tina fey and amy poehler and my okay Okay. it's on netflix i mean it's silly but it's really funny and I, i'm sure one of them is a mom in them and there's like a whole jokey thing like they see Brene brown at like one of the wineries and they all freak out and it's just amazing um so you would be them <laughs> is that your movie no one? i wouldn't but i was thinking that maybe one of them is probably like a mom on vacation okay and they're not Gooping making a around deal with about girl. it right and i don't yeah. think they talk a ton but i'm sure one of them is a mom anyway, what about I- you miranda so who's your who's your mother movie idol Oh my gosh, I don't know. I I was thinking about like counter idols. Like it's true. Like Nancy yeah. said, it was hard for me to find like, not just, you know, there's the good mom, but like someone admirable. So I just went like counter. Like I was thinking about, I love that mother character. I mean, love isn't, we could unpack that word, but we won't today. Like who's like kind of rich and taken care of and then she like only pops up to kind of every once in a while say something disparaging like the mom in the notebook who's like i live in a beautiful house i am well dressed people serve me dinner and then like once a week i drive my daughter to a construction site and say do you see that man i used to fuck him and the sex was great but you don't marry that guy okay because he's trash. And then I like go home and just kind of sit around for another few weeks. That sounds like a nice life. I feel like I'm so sad that I can't think of one. This is so I'm going to have to we're going to have to yeah. revisit this. No, people should people should um yeah, I would love it if people would weigh in with their with their mo- movie mom icons. Um yeah. I will it's say one well, Can you I said share? TV, Nancy. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, TV I think one. about like Better Things. I think is such a great <gasps> show. The yeah. best, the best. Yeah, and I love We're her gonna... in that. Yeah. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I also to give a book mom that I love, um, Catherine Newman's "We All Want Impossible Things." I'm reading oh. that right now. It's so good, and that is a is a character that I love in part, um, because she's a mom who's kind of a mess. Um, Her best friend is in hospice and she's caring for her. Um, She's like separated from her husband and is sleeping with all kinds of inappropriate people. One of her teenagers like walks in on her with the gym teacher. Like it's, um, you know, she's she's not like organized, orderly, 
um, you know, being responsible in various ways. But she is like incredibly loving. And I think you get the sense, I do at least in her relationship with her kids, that again, she really sees them as people and they know her as a person. And I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, I wonder too about, you know, the the medium of books versus movies um, and, and TV, you know, that in television, you can unpack a character over time, right? And we have so many kind of flat um, depictions of motherhood, you know, that it lends itself to like a 90 minute, two hour thing. It's like, you just kind of get that flatness, like, you know, mean mom, rich mom, bad mom, good mom, you know, mom who is kind of non-existent and just picks up the phone with like kids in the background. Right. And so TV does kind of, um, allow for more nuance. It's almost like, you know, we have too many stereotypes about moms to deal with them in two hours. I feel like there's a certain actresses too, right? It's like, um, Sally Field was yeah, like the, the movie mom. mom of my childhood, yep. like Mrs. Doubtfire, where she's kind of angry and stressed out, you know, and yeah. then there's but like... justifiably um, so, man. Oh, for sure. That's one thing. We tried to rewatch that at some point in the pandemic, and I was like, oh, I can't watch this, actually, um, for all yeah. kinds of reasons. Because they make that? her kind of too uptight. Oh, Annette Benning is the other one I was going to think of mm. as kind of like yeah. often a movie mom, right? Like American Beauty and mm-hmm. um, what's that re- recent-ish one? Where she's like, oh, it won some awards. Anyway. Something women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Like, yeah. There you go. Century, that one. century, century women. Something century. century women. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she's, and she adds some nuance to things. It is true, though. We have like, um, the, the actresses kind of portray our maternal stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Nancy Reddy, so much for joining us today. Happy Home Alone season to everyone out there listening. And like my mom always said, you'd be pretty sad if you woke up tomorrow morning and you didn't have a family. Mother Culture is produced by Opus Knox Media with music by It's Electric. Follow us on Instagram at Mother Culture Show and find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to feed the all-knowing algorithm by liking, following, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Thank you. And please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash motherculturepod, where you can follow us for free or become a paid member for just $5 a month, which honestly doesn't even get you a latte in major American cities these days. You'll support our production and receive some serious perks.